What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast, the official podcast at MetalNexus.net, where you can get all your show reviews, concert photos, festival going-ons as of lately. And, uh, you know, I feel like we haven't done this in quite a while. So, uh, with me as always, is Daniel Terry. How have you been this past week? <laughs> Oh, lots of ups and downs, man. There's uh let's see, I went and saw a Metallica thing in a in a movie theater. That was kinda cool, depending on what part of the evening it was. Uh I definitely had a lot of trouble staying awake for the second half. So it was the S or the M part that was hard to, to stay awake for? I guess it was the M and yeah, it's uh kinda funny. When I when I was a wee lad I was I was dating a girl who really liked the fact that I liked Metallica and uh I was like, oh, well, I've got some Metallica DVDs. We can watch one tonight, you know, when you come over, you know, after school. And uh, I was telling my friends all day that me and this girl were going to go home and watch some S&M. <laughs> and I had no idea, because I was a good Christian boy, I had no idea what I was actually saying. And uh, I got a lot of really weird looks, not from the other students, but from the teachers. They're like, oh, I guess I guess they're starting off really young now. <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, there was nothing really that exciting about about the concert. I I kind of expected the the pre rehab James Hetfield, you know, to be right on the brink, you know, and uh, didn't really get that. And um, yeah, it's just it's a thing that happened, and I, I wish I had more emotional attachment to it. I don't know if it's me or if it's them at this point. Speaking of emotional attachment, I uh, I guess you could say I fell off the wagon. Um, I said I was going to try to make it a month, uh, about a month and a half or so, actually, uh, without drinking, and made it uh, just shy of a month, made it about three weeks. Um, currently enjoying a Rochester Mills chocolate cheesecake stout. It is uh, straight from a draft uh, place that we have at one of our beer stores, and it is fucking delicious. Um that's awesome. So, enjoying that, um, you're going to enjoy a nice long chat. We've been posting a lot of longer chats as of recently. Kind of been holding off on posting some of them just because, you know, when you got these nice, like, tight 35, 40-minute episodes or so, and then you spring an hour and a half to two hours on people, it's a little bit much to try to get through. Um, so, it just kind of felt fitting to put out some of these episodes once we kind of were hitting a little bit of a break now that, you know, Dan's got another child, I started another job, so on and so forth. So uh, this episode's guest is Matt Fozzi, uh, currently of Rare Futures. Uh, you may remember him from the one record he put out with Taking Back Sunday. Uh, it is one of my favorites of the bands. And uh, we did this probably, shit, five months ago at this point? This is a while back. Like, I, there's parts of the interview where you're talking about how we're changing the name of the podcast. Yeah, and it hadn't happened yet, and that happened in, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's October. This is yes. This is rough. So, yeah. apologies to Matt uh, for doing this. Uh, but sometimes that's kind of what I like about this is, uh, you know, sometimes we'll have some of these episodes we've done. You know, we'll kind of sit on them for a little while, and you know, it's not to take away from anything that we, the conversation or the person, but sometimes we just get wrapped up in timelines of like, hey, this record or this tour is coming out. Like, you kind of need to get this out at a specific time. And with Matt, you know, the band really wasn't touring. You know, they're working on a, another record, so it was. Kinda kind of like this nice middle ground that we sometimes really like to get guests. I think this interview is kind of it's broken into thirds. Um, you know, there's the first part where we start talking about Rare Futures and, you know, them putting out their basically a live version of their last record. Then we segue into his 
you know, writing process and, and the, his time in Taking Back Sunday of writing New Again, which, you know, aptly named and kind of just a really interesting time period for the band, uh, Taking Back Sunday, that is. And then, you know, we go to wrap it up, as we usually do, and, you know, Matt kind of flipped the question on me where he was like, or I was like, oh, you know, are you guys planning on doing an EP or a full length or what's your plan of attack for the, the rest of this year? And then he was just like, well, I don't know, like, what do you think? And so this kind of was the catalyst way back then of where the EPs versus full length thing came because Matt kind of sprung the question on me and I'd never really gotten to talk about it so in depth. But I think the interesting thing was, is I had kind of sat on this for so long because I wasn't sure how, if I wanted to present it as a full or just cut it off between the Rare Futures and the Taking Back Sunday talk. But then in going back to kind of edit it and trying to tighten it up, it, it kind of really is all encompassing. Like we rebring back some of the things that Rare Futures is doing, what Taking Back Sunday is doing and so forth into the final thing. And it just kind of felt disingenuous to kind of tamper with that. Yeah, totally. And I really, I really liked getting to hear his perspective on the Taking Back Sunday thing because he was so graceful about explaining his, his version of what happened that to, to a certain point, like I would not have been that graceful <laughs> for with with a bunch of dudes that were like, "Hey, dude, um, you, we want you to write this record with us. You, you know, be part of the band. It's going to be great. We're going to love it. We're going to collaborate. We're going to give you a lot of creative control because you, you're the new blood in the band and, and and all this stuff. Only to just several months later turn on you like a bunch of rabid wolves. Like just like well." This record really wasn't that great because, you know, we had this new guy in the band and he just, like, really? Like, you guys all had, like, tons of seniority? You guys, you and an entire team of people at that point didn't get all collectively give this a thumbs up and say, we like this and are proud of this? You, because because you did. <laughs> like, like just just own it. Like, wh whether it's your favorite album by them or not, like, just own it. Like, it, you know, I mean, as, as a Taking Back Sunday casual listener, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a huge fan of the band, but I definitely appreciated their later, their later material over their earliest, uh, successes, you know, which was just, they were just snotty, whiny emo records, uh, which is fine, you know, and they did really well for, for what they were, but it wasn't until the band started actually kind of experimenting with different sounds that I feel like they really hit their stride. So in that case, I, I didn't really think that I thought that that record was kind of like par for the course, like, you know, where they were going anyway. Yeah. So for them to, for them to just turn, turn and say, Oh no, 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 no. It was just this one guy. It just, it doesn't really make sense. It's just a shame. And, and that time period for taking back Sunday is just so, so messy because i mean it's like you know you you lose john and and i never can remember the original bass player's name i'm sure if you're taking back sunday fan potentially listening to this you're going oh it's fucking so and so i don't care um i'm not leave us a comment sure um i'm still not gonna care but um i've never been a fan of that first record uh, i very much agree with dan sentiment it actually wasn't until i kind of late uh, a decade under the influence but i don't think tell all your friends or where you want to be whatever record that was the second record i i I feel like that was the outlier on that record. It wasn't the one that wasn't the song where everything else sounded like that. It still kind of had its roots in what was. And I think it wasn't until, you know, you had Matt Rubano, the bass player and, and Fred Masher, you know, the guitar player and the bass player that replaced John and the other dude where they, they kind of started figuring out who they were on the, on that second record in the touring cycle. But when you get to louder now, like that's to me taking back Sunday at their, one of their best. And for them to lose Fred, who had a really great voice, you know, did a lot of great writing with, with the band, 
and kind of blended and kind of started taking them more in a like kind of heavier rock direction than they kind of had. I think Matt, unfortunately, Fozzie was kind of in an unfortunate position of trying to fill big, massive shoes, especially when the band was at their their you know peak at that point, really. And I think they put out a really great, strong record for the demographic of people that they probably were playing to. And yeah. it wasn't emo. It wasn't like emo from a, a teen angst kind of perspective. It was kind of like now you're in your mid to late you know twenties or thirties, and you're dealing with shit. From that perspective, it's a, it's you can still be emotional about it, but it's more uh, reserved, but still kind of focused and, and, and a little bit more visceral and all that. And I, I think Matt did a really great job of bringing some interesting elements out of the band that were previously there, but pushing them forward. And to me, Louder Now and New Again are a great one-two punch. And to see that... You know, Matt didn't really get a chance to to follow that up, and then they kicked out Matt Rubano and, and got the original band back together. And I don't know, there's just so much dysfunction. I mean, at this point, Eddie Reyes, the original guitar player, is out of the band, and he kind of has spoken on that uh, since, you know, making a new band himself. But it just seems like taking back Sunday, I don't know. I mean, nostalgia is a hell of a thing. We know that a lot of bands go out on these, you know, reunion tours or anniversary tours and such, and that seems to be all taking back Sunday is doing is playing, you know, tell all your friends louder now. And when you go see them live, like they might play a couple of new songs off of whatever record they're promoting, but you're basically getting louder now. Tell all your friends where you want to be. They don't even play anything right. off a of new again, which is a shame. And I don't know. It's just it's just interesting. And I think you know you had kind of brought up something earlier this week um, when we were just going back and forth amid this whole flaw bullshit. So why don't you, why don't you go ahead and get into that for a hot minute? Well, it's an interesting thing because as I was listening to this interview, I was thinking, you know, like it's so weird that you know a band would just turn on one guy like there there's no excuse for that i can't think of any situation where that would be an appropriate thing to do and then i was like well and then flaw said hold flaw? my beer <laughs> flaw was like hold my beer man uh, so as as you all may or may not know uh this has been on all the metal sites so i i would assume that you, that you know uh if you didn't already uh flaw put out a record uh called volume four because of the brave which uh you know i think their fan it was pretty pretty much well received by their fans uh at first uh but it, a little bit after a while um some people started coming out of the woodwork uh specifically uh youtubers uh, who had recorded, you know, were, were just like guitar YouTube guitarists or, or musicians that were showing off their ideas on YouTube. And they started being like, yeah, you hear this song? Yeah, now listen to this Flaw song. Oh, look, it's the same thing. Um, that's, uh, that's a little rough. I mean, especially considering the Flaw was an established band. It's not like... It's not like this was their debut album and all of a sudden like these people are like guys these guys are like totally ripping us off. And they weren't just they weren't just like similar sounding riffs. You know what I mean? Cuz it's like new metal riff A might sound a, sound a little bit like new metal riff a, F or, or whatever, you know. Um and, you, and if you apply that to metalcore, I mean every band's ripping off of every other band, you know. But with uh with Flaw this was like literally like drum patterns electronics, <laughs> the riffs, everything was like identical. Dan, there's a perfectly uh, good explanation for that. Yeah, so let's let's get into that ex- explanation, right? Um, so the guitarist writes uh, 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 ex guitarist at this point. Yes, he is he is as of now no longer in the band. Tommy Gibbons, you messed up, buddy. Uh, and this is this is his expo- explanation. As many of you know, I am the current bass/guitar player for Flaw. Kind of weird. I don't, I don't think like 
he couldn't have been current for more than like eight more minutes after this. I was tasked with writing the music for our most recent album, Volume 4, Because of the Brave. To clarify, this is the only record I've recorded with Flaw. Did you really? And I had no... Yeah. And I had no hands in previous recordings. I have been writing and recording music for over 15 years. I, like many other musicians, look to YouTube for inspiration and creative ways to challenge myself and learn more. Over the years, I have listened to and re-recorded hundreds and hundreds of songs online. I also have hundreds and hundreds of songs recorded on my studio computer, which have been compiled over the last 10 or so years. Some of them mine, and some of them taken from other inspiration. I regretfully did not label and differentiate the music I wrote and recorded from a blank slate versus the inspiration I found and re-recorded as I was trying to further myself. As I was going through hours and hours of previously recorded material to present to Chris for the new album, clearly a specific style in my catalog stuck out to me. These are the things I re-recorded years ago and did not label where they actually came from. Oh, Jesus. Uh, This is where I went terribly wrong. I took the tracks I re-recorded, not knowing their true original source, and presented them to Chris, which in turn he worked tirelessly to write and record original lyrics and vocals to. He entrusted me with something that I thought I was going to truly impress him with, and I let him down. I take full and all responsibility for the accusations and bad press that has been flooding social media lately. None of the other band members had any knowledge or reason to believe that these songs were written by anyone else. They are free and clear of any responsibility or wrongdoing to all my friends and fans i want you to know that this was a royal mistake on my part and by no means that i intentionally try to steal or plagiarize any of the other musicians music i will do what i can to rectify the situation including any compensation for the original writers we have made contact with him and are working on an agreement again i am sorry to those i have let down including my bandmates who had no participation in writing the music for these recordings i understand and respect whatever decision has to be made by the band because of this and i hope i will continue to see you all along the way i'm sorry and thank you can we point out the big major no pun intended flaw of uh that apology uh every single time you write something you remember what you write uh well i mean let's <laughs> let's just give the benefit of the doubt maybe you mislabeled something shit happens uh i get it um except for they had already before the record came out already paid somebody for one of their songs that they got off youtube so yeah. that means that it had already been established that some of the material wasn't theirs and hadn't been written, and that he must have known where it came from before the album got released. Secondly, and I know all of this has already been said, but these are thoughts I had when I was reading this as everything was happening and being presented to us in real time, because this has been something that's been kind of brewing over the last, uh, I think, two or three weeks at this point as of when we're recording. Um But here's the thing. They have now found six, I think, out of the 10 or 11 tracks are all from a couple of different YouTube people. So that's half of a fucking record. And they're not by the same person. They're by, like, three or four different people. Right. So you done fucked up, man. Yeah, because it was, uh, what, New Metal Instrumental 2 was the the song that ended up being Conquer This Climb. And the YouTuber uh, Riffmaster T said, like, yeah, the band licensed the song from me. Which, I mean, if they had done that, what's hilarious to me is if they had done that with all of the songs, like properly paid for them, then this would have just been good business. You know what the better part is, is that dude went on at one point and was talking about how cool it is to see people already doing covers of the songs. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So now there's even more. Yeah. Yeah. But Uh. all of that aside, I'm sure we'll have plenty to dissect as we wrap up this episode after the interview. So without further ado, this is my conversation with Matt Fozzie, and we will talk to you afterwards. (laughs) 
have the pleasure this early morning of talking to Matt Fozzie, guitarist, vocalist, multi-instrumentalist, and uh, jack-of-all-trades when it comes to uh, music. Uh, he is uh, all of these things and more for Rear Futures. Their latest album, which is uh, This Is Your Brain Live, which is a companion piece to uh, the This Is Your Brain on Love record, which came out three years ago now. Shit. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the on the on the cast, my friend. Yeah, I've got a fresh cup of coffee. I'm ready to go. I got a fresh <laughs> bottle of water next to me. So, nice, nice. You know the the this is your brain live uh, is basically just kind of a nod to the band's past being you know happy body slow brain, and you know I kind of wanted to start there actually. You know I always find it interesting when a band decides to go through a rebrand and decides to like this entity of who we are is no longer accurate representation of what we are in name. So we decide to rebrand what kind of went into that. Um, well, it was kind of for me, I mean, I'm sure every band has a different situation and set of circumstances that lead them to that place. For me, it was, um, what became the album. This is your brain on love was supposed to be the second happy body, slow brain full length. It was already sort of sitting there, um, just waiting to be completed. And and then I went off and did some other stuff, playing in a few other bands, and I sat on it for a long time. And in the midst of that, one of the um, my like main sort of partner in crime in Happy Body Slow Brain, he and I sort of parted ways. And so that extended that amount of time that I sort of waited to do something with the record. And in this like let's say about a year and a half or a two year span. Um, I had had a couple of experiences with other bands that, that didn't leave the best taste in my mouth. And so it kind of just, it was, uh, it was time for a spiritual refresher. So um, when I stepped back and I looked at um, happy body as a whole, I, I felt like the name needed an update, but I liked the spirit and the approach of the music. And obviously, um, like I said, I had a record that was already done. So, I felt like I couldn't fully abandon ship. I just felt like um, the old name was a mouthful that people messed up a lot, and that was a concern of mine going forward. But, um, but like, I mean, that was a big part of it. It was just like I, the approach to the music was going to be the same, and I liked the, the way that I had figured out my branding and stuff, so I didn't want to get rid of the logo that I felt attached to and... Um, I just felt like the name needed something that was a little uh, more unique, but also shorter and to the point and a little bit more um, evolved. Like I had changed a lot since I started that band. Like, well, since I started taking it seriously back in 2010 or so. Um, so I just, it, it was a good way for me to go like, all right, I need to get rid of all this. Um, negativity that I went through playing with some of these other groups that um, didn't really get me where I wanted to be. And I'm going to turn that into like uh, motivation for my own band, you know? So, so changing the name as tough as it was for me, because I felt like I was letting go a lot of, of a lot of the history that I built under one name. I felt like it was still worth it because I didn't, um, feel as connected anymore to that version of the band. I wanted to have that. I wanted to make a bridge that would bring it to the present for me. You know what I mean? Right. Not fully, not fully abandoned ship. You know. The interesting thing to me about it, and we'll kind of touch on this probably very quickly, is uh, 
you know, with the band itself and, and kind of the sonic textures that you guys are using and, and some of the just really the, the how the whole project is between the visuals calling like your YouTube videos missions and, you know, the outfits that you guys are wearing. It's a, it's a very all in approach to this this new I don't know if theme is the word I want to use, but it seems like once the, the rare future change happened, it seemed like with it, you just fully went in on this concept, I guess is the better word. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, that's, that's partially, uh, to do with the evolution of happy body Silverine. Like that was that, that project has always been, um, funded by me and everything has been done by me behind the scenes. So like I learned a lot of hard lessons going that route of starting my own label and, um, releasing my music at a time where, um, like right at the end of taking back Sunday, leading into my starting happy body Silverine, um, you know, like the, the industry was so much in flux. It still is in flux, but record sales were changing things like, um, digital aggregators were coming out. So it made it a lot easier for me to take control of what I was doing and not have to, um, be so concerned about some sort of outside entity playing a middleman. Um, so with that, anyway, came a lot of, uh, hard lessons and stuff in that, um, so one of the lessons I learned though, that I tried to bring to our futures was being more consistent about the, the feel of what the band is and, and the, like this, uh, the aesthetic and the spiritual mission of it and just trying to make it really, um, professionally consistent across, uh, all of our social media and, um, and professionally consistent with the way we play our shows or the videos that we're putting out, trying to create a world for it to live in, you know? Um, that I didn't, that I feel like I sort of, because maybe I was wearing too many hats with happy body silver and I didn't quite get there. I didn't get to that conclusion. So that was another like big lesson that I had learned. And in the, in the process of rebranding the band, it was something I really wanted to, to make sure that, um, that I was approaching 100% with, with the plan, you know, making sure that I'm driving home, um, the logo that we're using and making it more vis uh, visible across all the things that we're doing and really trying to work it in and create sort of, I mean, like this, this word might sound a little too heavy for what it is, but like create a mythology around the band, sort of like some, just a, a place for it to live. That isn't just, we're just a rock band with no, like with, uh, with no direction, you know, like I want to, I, 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 um, it makes me happy to hear that from you because that's the intention is to try and like, uh, put out these things with a very strong visual element that sort of is complementing how much time I put into the music. Well, like uh, the thing I kept latching onto it and doing, listening to the record, both of them and li looking online at your social media presence and so forth, you know, I noticed hell, even on your website, you taken such consideration to give a unique experience even there that like you have, the same photo, basically, but the background changes color. So, like, you're even engaging in something as minute as someone potentially just being on the page and that still image, quote-unquote, moving. And it just seems like nothing is done in this band without having a purpose. And whether you realize what that purpose is, is, I guess, up to you. It seems like it's a very multi-layered, multi-faceted entity. Yeah, I yeah, I appreciate that that you notice these things because like I I do like toil away in the uh in the dark hours of the night trying to like do, like work on these little details exactly like that and um so 
I, you know, sometimes I wonder if I spend too much time doing those things, but having you say that really does make me feel better <laughs> that someone out there is, is, uh, is noticing because I, you know, like that, that is something I've also just slowly learned over time that there's, um, you know, that you really have to nurture the, the, the fan experience or nurture your own tribe is, is a term I've heard before. Um, so like that, yeah, like that, you, you don't understand how much that actually means to me that, uh, that you've noticed some of these small details because I do spend a lot of time on it and I'm, and I really wonder if, if, uh, if it just like goes totally, um, totally under the radar you know well it's it's kind of funny i I spent this this topic has kind of come up a little bit uh i was actually editing an episode with uh landon tours from the plot new uh yesterday that i did a couple of days ago and we were actually talking about at one point in the interview about how you know i don't feel like there's a connection between bands and fans as much as there used to be like you know i'm gonna be 35 in a couple of months and i remember you know when victory records and a lot of these labels would put out dvds and bands were put constantly putting out content like that where you're getting a behind the scenes look at who they are as people in addition to them being on the road and doing their thing or making of albums and so forth and i feel like what's happened is it bred a stronger connect between the individual people like you might identify more with a specific member because oh they're they kind of have this same humor I do or are into some of the same things as I am and I feel like we've kind of lost that connect with with some of our favorite bands and even though I said that that's kind of what maybe social media has has become and replaced the the need for a DVD or whatever it still is one of those things like I think because of how much how many hours I spent watching band documentaries and making ups and so forth and and how a lot of those things also created a deeper bond with the music I was listening to that those are the things I enjoy more about kind of growing up when I did where I it wasn't maybe an oversaturization of of content but the content meant more and was more of a bridge between the art and the people and kind of growing a deeper, like I said, a deeper connection with all of it so that when you really latched onto it, you really, it really meant something to you. And yeah, I, I, yeah. I guess I just don't feel like maybe newer fans or younger people maybe are looking for a lot of these things, looking at some of the smaller minute details that are going to give you that richer experience because it's all surface level. Now, if it's not on your phone, no one cares. Yeah, I, man, I I mean, we're we're pretty much the same age, so I I come from the same place. I loved every chance I got to soak up all the little um all the like whether that was live bootlegs that I was buying on eBay of some of my favorite bands or like um, you know, things like Blink Urethra Chronicles or uh any anything like that that gave you a glimpse behind the band i love that stuff and i felt the same way it made me feel a lot more attached to their music and um and you felt like you were you're supporting a person rather than just the band and entity that um yeah that that connection becomes much much deeper and i agree that today uh this the climate now is not it's a double-edged sword there's like there's some bands that really want to like heavily create the mystique and they want to have that separation and they're putting out a social media presence that has this like, uh, we're fucking cool as fuck. And every photo is super, uh, curated and all this stuff. Um, and then there's the flip side. There's a few bands out there that are really trying 
to show their true personality. And uh, that's, that's also a work in progress for us where we want, we want to um, come across really professional with the, the content that we're putting out. But, um, you know, as people, we, we love all kinds of music. We take music very seriously, but we also have a, a collective um, uh, sense of humor. So like that, that's one thing that is, it's a balance that some bands are able to strike really well and, um, and other bands are not so concerned with, but I, uh, to try and like bring it back, I think, I think in, in this climate now with, with things so readily available, all kinds of music, things like Spotify that have devalued music in such a way where you don't, you, it's harder to get that connection to a listener because, um, they just have a million options every single day. Uh, like I think uh, it's really important for bands to try and um, understand what the what the true like spirit of the band's personality is, and then that's what you're trying to convey to someone and hopefully connect them to, so that they feel inspired to um, to give you whatever little time and energy that they have that they can squeeze out during the day while they're not distracted by a bunch of other things uh, to turn that you know toward hopefully rare futures or or whatever you know, like whoever's pursuing what they're pursuing. But, um, but I do feel like right now it's, it's so important to try and um, really enhance and sell your personality. And the more genuine you can be, I think the, that uh, that creates those, the fans like you and I that, that grew up in maybe the generation right before this that had um, more to chew on when it came to certain bands where if we wanted to dig deeper, we could and um and we could deepen that connection so so i don't know man it's like there's there's pluses and minuses this social media thing can open up a gate to seeing behind behind the scenes of some of your favorite bands but it it it, it really is is dependent on if the band wants to let you see that you know and how much of how much they allow you right. know yeah no it, it's kind of funny you actually you bring up carefully kind of curating what you're doing and it kind of makes me wonder actually and a question i kind of the one with the few questions i actually had written down is this why in the three years since the record has come out you kind of did the the live version of it to really kind of show the nuances of the record kind of tip the hat to the past while also even kind of incorporating you know like the side a cover where you're kind of getting a fuller representation of of the band and then on top of that you're creating a different vibe than what it was on the on the you know studio version of the record to kind of really get people maybe like you know as you're listening to it and taking it all in you're like wow I didn't notice that part or I I didn't you know I don't know I just I kind of kept coming back to that like I feel like there was a bigger reason as opposed to working and putting out another another full length record that maybe there was a bigger reason as to why you put out the live version of the record and and that was all I kind of kept coming back to was it encompasses more of everything the past the present and influences yeah you're pretty much hitting it around the head it was it was like all of those things sort of coming together i mean and actually to connect it to what we were just talking about um that was another thing that i loved about bands certain bands growing up that they would put out live albums and then that was another way to reinterpret their music and some bands uh you know would would do it so drastically different from a record and that would be really refreshing so um, that is definitely an element of it. Bands like Mute Math still do that. Between every record, they do a full, like, proper live album. And I, I love it because 
um, I look up to them a lot and I think that they do, they do a really great job of taking what they do in the studio and do and flipping it around and, um, keeping certain elements that are really crucial to a song, but they really stretch things out or they, they, they flip it on its head live. And, um, and the quality of their live albums and the quality of their live DVDs, like that was definitely a huge inspiration on uh, me doing a live album with Happy Body, but also continuing that same thing with the Rare Features. And um, and you're totally right that there there is that element of me trying to marry the past of the band with the present because there's still quite a lot of people that maybe are familiar with Happy Body Slow Brain, but they don't... Um, they miss the memo on uh, the evolution of the band into Rare Futures, and they don't actually recognize that it really is the same thing. So I'm trying to send them a message like, we still play those songs. They still get worked in. It's still part of the DNA of the band. Um, and and uh, yeah, it's just a way to try and reinforce that idea. And, uh, and then also it's a way to like give this is your brain on love a little bit more life because I like, because it was a self-release through my own label. It, you know, there's, there's only so much visibility that you can achieve when you're just essentially like a one man show and without a whole lot of money, like real backing money. So um, it's, it's also part of it is like trying to give those songs uh, not only from the couple of sprinkles of happy body songs, but these songs from this is your brain on love. Um, a little bit more uh, shelf life, you, you know, if someone hopefully discovers them maybe through um, one channel or another, maybe they find a live record before they've stumbled across the album version. Um, you know, it's just kind of like trying to make as put as many um, branches out there so that hopefully someone can uh, find one and sort of follow it back to the, to the, the base of the tree and see that there's a lot more, dug into the roots you know so you're kind of on it man you you got it all it's like and the Sade cover same thing we've been doing that song for a while we love that uh that song in that it's a different flavor than a lot of the other parts of the band so it's it's about like you know also showing some of the variety of the band and what we can do you know with the vision like I was saying earlier with the visuals and kind of having more of a a space theme to everything between sort of like the, the outfits to the uh, some of the stuff in your music videos and so forth. Do you see kind of going more and the only band I can kind of really think of off the top of my head. So forgive this example, but uh, like kind of going more angels and airways with it, where it's, it's becoming a, a bigger narrative, a bigger part of, of the band and maybe of the story that you're working on maybe for this next release. Um, There's, there's a definite like, there's a definite spiritual thread that sort of like an existential spiritual thread that goes through all the music, even going back to the first happy body, slow brain album. I wouldn't say that there, there's going to be like, uh, as clear of a, like a narrative, the way the angels and airwaves does it, or let's say even, I don't know if you're a fan of the deer hunter. Um, they have this, they have this whole act series. That's, um, all of the, this, I think it's, five albums deep now but it's like this really um intensely rich story that continues throughout um i i am more of the mind of like trying to have a sort of theme within a record that sort of fits into uh, a larger umbrella but they but they're not so like strongly tied together where you have to 
hear them in a sequence in order to get something else out of it. It's sort of, it's supposed to be these like um, bite-sized elements that you can add together into a larger thing, but, um, but it's not completely 100% necessary. There will be, you know, themes and threads that keep it all uh, together for the most part. But um, it, like, I wouldn't say that it's going to be some, larger thing i'll just say that it like i was trying to explain earlier there i'm trying to create a world for this band to live in and um and i'm still sort of figuring out what the ultimate voice is but um but i think like it won't get much more intensely uh what's the word i'm looking for it won't get it won't be so much like concept record style it'll be more like there's a there's a vibe that i'm trying to to stay with so, for example, like the the new thing that I'm trying to work on is um, for the next Rare Features release is a lot more about like uh, the where society is at the moment with all these things going on politically and and how much that sort of makes you question where you stand on the line of like action or inaction. You know how much how much darkness in the world can you stand by and watch versus what is going to make you actually um, motivated to do something about it. So like, that's something like a very loose idea that I'm using as a theme to build the lyrics for this next batch of material for rare features. Yeah. It just kind of made me wonder, you know, kind of in looking at, at what's been going on and, and where it seems like, the pieces are falling that that was kind of my next logical conclusion that I was like, Oh, okay. Like I think maybe this is what's going to be coming. And hence why, like I said, kind of why revisiting the record in a, a different way. So you can kind of further prepare for, for this next step. Yeah. 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 There's always just some sort of like umbrella I'm trying to live under, but that umbrella, the, the, uh, the, the, the rules sort of shift as I'm sort of finding it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, kind of in, in shifting gears a little bit, one of the things, and we tried doing this a couple of years, or I tried getting you to come on this show a couple of years ago, because at the time I was, the I did, myself with the podcast did a rebrand uh, about in the beginning of the year, um, and even before that I kind of did a little bit of a rebrand as well, where initially the focus of this podcast was more so getting to have people come on and talk about the other adventures that they are into, maybe, you know, like with Porter from Atreyu with uh, his photography, or, you know, somebody might be into writing or whatever, and so I was trying to just get people that maybe weren't known for the thing that they are actually known for, and then eventually I just, I eventually just kind of was like, well, I'm, people are, you know, I love so many records and I would like to talk to people about some of the, my favorite records. Uh, and so eventually I just kind of like stopped that idea. I was like, I'm just going to do like whatever I want and we'll just see if people dig it. But with all of that, I've had the pleasure over the last two ish plus years of doing this podcast of getting to talk to some of my, some people associated with some of my favorite records that, admittedly probably aren't most people's favorite records out of that band's discography those that obviously would recognize your name probably are familiar with the fact that you were in taking back sunday uh at least on the new again record i gotta say i was never really a fan of taking back sunday on the first two records it really was louder now that brought me in and then i went back to the one previous and kind of was like eh, there's there's hints of where louder now was gonna go sadly you know it was obviously for me, it was Fred's playing that I and his voice and just a lot of the way that that band was with him and Matt Rubano in the band. And I was really 
bummed initially when when Fred left, and then once you had joined and I kind of heard the first single off of it, I was like, okay, like this is a little. It's got kind of the same energy and the same flavor. And once I finally got the record, I feel like it's whereas Louder Now kind of tapers a little bit trying to be what it what the band was. I feel like New Again was really embracing another kind of restart. Obviously pun intended with the name but it was one of those things that i feel like it was one of the more kind of visceral records it, it, everything was kind of more surface level it wasn't you know very tongue-in-cheek anymore it was it was very for the first time it felt like a band that was growing up and kind of being like instead of being the snotty brat-nosed kid it's like no i'm you know i'm older now i can actually articulate how i'm feeling and, and tell you kind of dead on how i feel about things and the playing on it, you know, I really loved what I, th- I what I feel like you brought to the band, and in doing the research, you know, with alt press and all that stuff back in the day, you know, there was a lot of stuff said about how you specifically were bringing all of, like, you know, being a multi-instrumentalist, you're bringing a lot of different ideas and inspiring everyone to kind of think outside the box and, you know, all of this kind of stuff, and it seemed like everything was really good. And I guess before I get to the, the how everything panned out, I guess let's talk a little bit about the record. You know, it's very easy to find the information on how you got to join the band, but what was the process like for you? Because I know having seen the band on Project Revolution, uh, that Linkin Park tour that they were on, you know, they had already been writing the follow-up for Louder Now, but I don't think I've really ever seen or heard you know, when you came in, did they basically scrap all those ideas and start all fresh with you, or were they reworking some of those ideas with you? No, there there was maybe maybe two or three of them that were had begun to some degree, and, and I can remember like there's a song called Summer Man. Um, they had they had like the main meat of some of the verses and I, maybe the part of the chorus. Um, and then like, I came up with the guitar intro and, uh, and like a few other bits that kind of glued it together and, uh, and then helped with the arrangement of that one. So that was kind of partially there. Uh, actually I remember my very first, I did two auditions. I did one in like January, very beginning of January, 2008. And I remember in that first audition, they showed a new song which uh, which became a song called Lonely Lonely, which is like second or third on the album. And that one was the same thing where they had like a verse and a chorus idea, but they didn't have a bridge. And so I remember I wrote the bridge of that song in that very first um, tryout during, with the band. And I think that won me a few brownie points because it ended up sticking surprisingly all the way through that through that time but um so yeah like there was a couple ideas that um that they had either started with fred or they started maybe in the time right after fred had left because i mean we're ta- like project revolution was summer of 2007 right um and then i got the call about auditioning for the band i think in november of that year but i didn't end up going out until january so um so like that window was pretty small I, and I don't know how involved Fred was with what the couple ideas that sort of existed when I stepped in. Um, I mean, it didn't honestly though, like just looking at the pieces, like I don't think he was really part of it because they were, they were missing the Fred elements. There was no guitar leads. There was no like, um, like interesting chord stuff happening there that, uh, that 
was my interpretation of what Fred really brought to the table. So, um, so like, yeah, I mean, I, I, to, to like zoom back real quick, I feel very fortunate that when I stepped into the group, um, I was allowed to sort of fill such a gap that Fred had left, you know, because I, I have so much, so much respect for Fred and his skill and, and what he brought to the band. Um, I, I wasn't sure what to expect if, if I would just be coming in and they'd tell me exactly what to play and that's that, or if I actually got to get creative. So, um, so yeah, that, that creativity actually started almost from day one. I got to start putting in my two cents and luckily some of that stuff or a lot of that stuff stuck. <laughs> you know, something I, I always find interesting is, and I, I don't know that maybe a lot of people think of this, but how hard it is or must be for you to come in, the band, you know, establishes themselves on the first record, you know, in the back and forth of Adam and, and John Nolan. And then they re, you know, get bigger actually once Fred joins and then it's Fred and Adam. So therefore now when you come in, not only do you have to play these songs that are, are pretty iconic, but vocally, you know, now you're having to play guitar like John and Fred and then also sing like John and Fred or find at least a happy medium to appease old fans. How hard of a process was that? And like, were the guys kind of like, just do your thing and everything will be fine. Or was, was there a lot of pressure on yourself from yourself to try to find the best way to appease everyone sound wise, tonally and everything? Um, you know, like when, uh, when I showed up for the first audition, I, I think they had asked me to learn like four songs and I learned something like 20. Um, and I, so like, I, I really leading, uh, let me actually, let me go back. So I got the call in November and the rehearsal was in January. So I had all this time to sort of like ruminate on what it could become <clears throat> and also to learn a bunch of music. So I really made it my goal to, to come in knowing those songs like I was in the band, like I knowing them like the back of my hand, singing them with confidence um, and all that. Um, so I, I, like the original spirit was just trying to sing the parts that uh, in a way that felt natural to me. Um, but as it evolved, as I was in the band over time, I started to find the middle ground a little bit more where I could break up my voice in certain parts like Fred would do, which is not really something that was part of my singing repertoire before. Um, and also find ways like eventually when we got around to doing live, uh, we did like live at Bamboozle and then we did live at Orange Fans, which I'm really stoked about and happy with. I was able to kind of live in the songs long enough where I could take certain parts of it and really make it my own and, and kind of, go from being like just trying to sing their parts with justice to actually singing them from like uh, a genuine place and feeling like it's me sort of putting my stamp on it, you know? So um, to answer the question in simple terms, it's that sort of idea of trying to live up to Fred and John's guitar playing and their singing and stuff. Originally it was just me trying to make sure that the notes were all in the right place with the right feeling. And then eventually as I became more comfortable with all the music and really got a chance to, um, to know it well, that's when I got to take that extra step of like, okay, now I know where it's sort of like my vocal range sits in this band and how I can make it, I can put my own stamp on things. And I mean, same thing with the spirit of the music too. It took a, 
it, I was taking some risks trying to push the band in some directions that I know they hadn't gone in the form of, um, you know, doing some time signature stuff that maybe the band hadn't done before, or at least like approaching chord regressions slightly differently or things like that. So it's the same idea. Like I, I had big goals and aspirations, but I tried to sort of allow it to uh, unfold naturally and and read the situation and um, complement it in the best way I possibly could as it was evolving. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Another thing too, that I kind of always wondered and eventually we're going to, I'm already working on getting Fred. He's just got a bunch of shit he's doing. Uh, but it was, it was really cool. He is, he's a really nice, humble, down-to-earth person, so I am very much looking forward to having him on and kind of talking about stuff as well. But something, you know... He's so nice. Fred he, is so cool, so nice. Like, we... the You know, I'd met TBS before and opened for them um, on the warm-up tour leading up to Louder Now, and uh, and Fred was just nothing but nice and such a... He, he's just so, like, soft-spoken, so easy to chat with. Um, and even after the fact, after I've playing TBS and I left even happy body slow brain and uh color Fred have played together in terrible things too. So I, I, I have nothing but really great things to say about him. And, um, and I was lucky to get to, to play his parts because I think Fred brought so much to that band that, um, that maybe he deserves even a little bit more credit for. <laughs> Most assuredly. And actually that's exactly where I was going to go with it is speaking to his playing and John's as well. When looking at the band's back catalog and, and kind of learning their set, I'm trying to kind of figure, I would assume you were kind of looking at that stuff once you kind of knew you were going to be in the band and knew you were going to have to play these songs. But how much of it did you take in before writing? And as such, did kind of breaking down what each of those people did kind of give you a better understanding of how the band worked and maybe even how you were approaching writing with the guys or not at all? Um, You know, like looking back, I, I think I think I... I've, I was in this sort of sweet spot with the band where I, <clears throat> I was well aware of Taking Back Sunday existing, but I didn't, I wasn't really, really invested in them as a fan. Um, and uh, I knew a few songs. So, uh, so in a way, like um, my slate going in was pretty clean. I didn't, I didn't know them. I only knew really Eddie. And uh, and I owe him all of the credit for getting me the opportunity to audition for the band and really being my champion. Um, but I really didn't know everyone else, and I th I think that ended up working uh, to my advantage. Where I just there was <clears throat> I didn't go in with a whole lot of preconceived notions about what it was supposed to be, or uh, you know what certain personalities might turn out like, or even expectations about how much creative freedom I might be able to have. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. I, I consider myself lucky looking back in retrospect that I sort of was in this sweet spot where I could approach the musicality with uh, sort of a, a pure perspective of going like, okay, I have an idea of like, I know what these dudes have done and I sort of can see some places where I can add my flavor, but not like completely flip it on its head where people won't, um, won't see it as an evolution. You know what I mean? I, I didn't want it to be it to be like a left turn, but I wanted to add some things that I just for. So uh, I would say that that a lot of that was um, fortunately because I, I came in sort of with a pretty clean slate 
about what I thought the band should be musically or about personalities and stuff. So um, does that sort of answer the question? Uh, sort of. I was kind of looking at it more like um, tr- trying to figure out a way to say this. So if like guitar, like I'm not super versed in guitar, like I play, but like I'm self-taught. So like I'm trying to find a way to, to dumb it down, but also to people who maybe play guitar, this will make sense. So like, let's say like, you know, Fred may play a lot of minor chords uh, in his, you know, chorus progressions or something like that. Like, he has a, a style that kind of is Fred's style. And John maybe likes using a lot of octaves in bar, over his bar chords or something like that. And kind of looking at it more from the songwriting perspective of being like, oh, okay, like, I see how these two guys play in that sense of, like, actual note choosing choices and phrasings. And as such, kind of maybe going like, okay, so, like, this is kind of what makes Taking Back Sunday work. Uh, from a songwriting perspective, and then trying to maybe mimic that a little bit more, so maybe some of your ideas sound more familiar from a song, like from the arrangement process. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So there was like a there was a like I would say a small conscious element of that of going like I know the general rock vibe they're going for, but I'm I also am going to approach writing melodies from a perspective of trying to write for two voices rather than one. Or um, there, you know, there's definite influence that just sort of naturally happened by um, me learning all of, uh, like I had said earlier, I learned quite a bit of the back catalog even before the audition. So that um, just sort of naturally found its way into um, how I was composing some guitar leads and stuff where I'd go like, oh, well, Fred kind of does these like um, high noodly sort of pull off guitar parts. Maybe I'll try to write a guitar lead that sounds like Fred's vibe. So, like, there's a couple. I would definitely say that there's a couple leads on New Again. Um, like, for example, there's a song called Swing. The guitar lead in that one is sort of a like a little nod, a little tip of the hat to a Fred lead. Where you know, like, I was you know just having to learn his his style. Is like, oh, I'm kind of in this headspace. I might as well just have a, a part that sort of is a little bit of a nod to that. Um, so that, yeah. So. So yes, there was like a small bit of of me um, naturally sort of having to learn their music, naturally sort of it just getting filtered back through me and coming out in certain ways where I go like, oh, maybe I wasn't, as I'm sitting there learning the song, thinking about it then, but now that I'm thinking about composing for them, I'm going like, oh, I can pull from these few places that um, now there's some context because I've learned stuff that was from the John era and stuff that was from the Fred era. So yeah, there was a little bit of, uh, in one informing the other, you know? Right. Yeah. And I definitely, I, I feel like I noticed that. And, and that's why to me, it's like, Oh, this is kind of a really good extension of, of where louder now ended. And to me, like I said, it's like, it, it's a lot of people have nostalgia attached to the first record and, you know, being young and youthful. And and I totally understand all that. But for me, it's like, to me, Louder Now and and New Again, especially, are like that mid-20s, 30s kind of sound where you're like, okay, I'm not that person anymore. I'm not, you know, filled with, you know, oh, this girl broke my heart or, you know, things like that. It's like, now I'm- Yeah, that same kind of angst. Yeah, and it's like it's now more like the angst is there. I feel like for sure, but it's more, it's more focused, and it's more adult, yeah, adult exactly. angst. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So now, kind now that we've talked a little bit about the record and the, and the process of you getting in the band, this is 
This is something that's always intrigued me about the record. So going in, everything seemed so great. Everyone was so high on on what you brought to the table, you know, pulling the best out of everybody, you know, even having a hand in getting the producer who everyone was super excited about, you know, with David Kahn or Canny. I don't don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, Yeah, David Kahn, yeah. And then it seemed like, you know, the record came out, charted, I believe, number seven on the Billboard, so you had a top ten record, so it did as good, if not better, than Louder Now, which from a critical standpoint and sales-wise is great. But it seemed like reception from fans was very eh. And then the even weirder thing to me, in almost a sort of revisionist history, has been that in the interview since you had left the band that I had found, like, you know, a lot of, mainly it seemed like Adam, Eddie, and and Matt all kind of took, not shots, but they took... Mark, uh, yeah, Adam, Eddie, and Mark, because Matt Rubano left with me. Okay, but I was going to say, I have seen interviews, or I heard an interview with him after the fact, kind of basically stating, like, um, that he didn't feel like you were going to be a good fit because of your, your positive optimism uh, oh, and all that kind oh, of stuff. Sorry, I was, no, 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 I was um, jumping ahead thinking that you were um, talking about this uh, this article that, or they've done a couple of interviews, the three of them, where they um, w- weren't saying the best things about uh, me and Rubano or that record, but... Yeah. I'm sorry, keep, continue on. So basically, it was just kind of very interesting <clears throat> to me that you have these people that are highly praising you, but then upon the record, maybe... And that's the weird thing, and this is where my kind of hang-up with everything kind of comes as a fan and kind of as someone who pays attention to more uh, uh, business side of things, I guess, in the music industry is, you know, you're lauded in the beginning for all the things that you did that made this record what it was, but then upon your exit those same intangibles are basically the things that were detrimental uh, to the album's success. Well, you know, the producer wasn't really who we wanted, and he really wasn't able to get capture the sound we, we felt was us, even though you're on record as saying that those sounds are why this record is interesting and exciting. And it's it's just, I don't know, it's always been weird, and I feel like, yeah. you know, it's it's created this kind of ominous cloud over the record of... It, maybe it not really giving the fair shake it deserves because I, I think very much like what I was saying earlier with uh, getting to talk to Nate about Say Hello to Sunshine, after I did that interview, you can go on YouTube and, and find comments from people who are like, oh my god, I love this record. I love this record so much. I never understood why people didn't like it. And I feel like either the 10 years or so away from its release and everyone finally understanding like, okay, so it's not what it is to burn. That's okay. This is a completely different you know, direction the band wanted to go in and I think actually is more interesting yeah. and exciting and would lead to the band being around a lot longer because I'm sorry, Glassjaw already existed, so we didn't need another Glassjaw band. <laughs> and same thing. There were plenty of bands around the time of Louder Now that were basically trying to emulate what Taking Back Sunday was doing at that time and that that style wasn't gonna work I don't think anymore I think it had a very limited shelf life whereas what you were doing on new again I think was going to allow the band to stay around and be more relevant for a longer period of time and retain the fans that are older and going to want to stick around versus the younger you know warp tour demographic of always getting into that you know nice 14 to 22 demographic or whatever and it's like it's just so weird looking back at this record and, and not seeing it get the the credit I feel like it really deserves and it seemingly being blamed on you the producer and 
people who aren't aren't around for the record. And I just kind of feel like I I don't know if anyone's really ever asked you how that felt upon you know you know upon leaving the band because it's like I said it's just so weird to see you know all these people be like oh my god this is so great and we love this record to then being like no no we don't and, yeah. and this this yeah. these things are why this isn't good and it's like you guys. And again, I'm trying not to, to stir the pot or anything like that, but it's just like as a fan, it's like I always thought how disingenuous that is because it's like you literally are on record saying like these are why you like it. And now you're saying it's not. And the, yeah, only, the, the only constant, <laughs> the only constant, like even like I try to apply this, we'll, we'll put it on a broader spectrum. When people blame failed relationships on the other people who are no longer there, it's like you have to at some point take ownership for some of it because you're the only constant now. The only constant in the, the failed relationships is you. You have to take right, some, yeah. some ownership as well. And I feel like that was never the case. And I feel like you always got the bad rap for being why the band changed so much and, and why things didn't work. And it's like it can't solely be on you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. The narrative – um, on paper, at least you can see that it completely flipped once the record came out. And I mean, um, I, I, for me, I think a lot of it, I was an easy scapegoat. They did, they did give me a lot of creative, um, input on the record and, and thus like, um, I think that's why it was easy to turn sort of turn it on me, uh, when the record didn't do so well. Like, I mean, it, for me, I was coming from a completely different place. So anything that we achieved was the biggest thing that I had done at the time. So like, I was happy just to be part of the whole process of like, I'm on a major label, the record came out, we get to make a video, um, you know, and, and uh, everything beyond that is like the frosting. But for them, the context was so different. Like, obviously, third guitar player around trying to get back on the horse again, make a record and um, and then I think really what, what flipped it was that it, the climate was just that record sales were plummeting. So I think they had maybe slightly unrealistic expectations about the first week of sales. Um, and that just changed the morale of the band pretty instantaneously. Um, when it didn't sell like half a million copies in the first week. Um, I know, a, I know a I know, like, yeah, tell me about it. I, I was pumped. But um, but I think they, when they're measuring it up against Louder Now and also just the, the, the climate of when Louder Now came out where record sales were that much better and that much bigger, um, they, I think they had a hard time looking beyond just like the actual numbers of it and just being like, uh, and, and kind of going back to the, the, the space that they were speaking of the record beforehand which is like we're really proud of the music we think that we've taken taken a step forward as a band um all, basically all the spirit of what you had said earlier which is that we collectively felt really good about the music we felt like we were um taking the band we were evolving the band we didn't we we felt like we had come to a place where we had achieved like making something that stood up to louder now but also took it to like the next place, the next level. We felt like the, um, the music had just like gotten maybe for lack of a better way to put it, like maybe just a little bit smarter. We tried to approach everything just like slightly, um, with a different sense 
whether that was little drum parts or different rhythms and the guitars and stuff like that, we really were trying to do something that took the band to at least somewhat of a new place. So yeah, it was, it was just disappointing. Like we, the, it's pretty true. Like what you read, what you read interviews leading up to when the record came out, those, those are all genuine. We all felt really good about the record. And then um, I think the turning point was really when it didn't sell so well and they felt like it was a failure. And so that, um, that combined with just like the record came out after we had sort of gone through a honeymoon phase together. So everyone was kind of just settling back into, um, being in their own personal rhythms rather than sort of being on their best behavior, you know, at all times. So, um, so like, unfortunately just as we got to know each other a little bit more and the personalities weren't blending as well. Um, I think that just sort of fed into this, this negative feedback loop that was already, that had sort of already begun when the record came out and it, it didn't meet some other members expectations, you know? I think the thing that in light of this 20 year perpetual, it seems uh, nostalgia tours that the band keeps doing, which is, you know, I'm saying that as a fan um, or maybe, I guess not as a fan, as just someone who is paying attention to this. I feel like it's interesting. You know, they're just basically doing tell all your friends and and louder now, now on this, this 20 year anniversary tour. Uh, of the band or whatever, and Fred's not associated with it, which I think is a bit disingenuous. That aside, and Matt's not even back in the band to do this to me. Like I and I understand. Like I've talked to other band people about this. Like you know, it's it's sort of this weird thing. Like, well, we have the original band. Well, now not with Eddie even. So I mean, there's just a lot of weird weirdness around all of that. But that aside, I've always kind of felt like it's. And I guess I get it. It's it's a record they're maybe not proud of, but I've always thought that there's some really great songs and, and some songs that I think would go over really, really, really well uh, in a live setting. And it's just kind of interesting that they just almost don't even acknowledge that that record even exists. Like, is it kind of sad yeah. that it's like the outside of literally the record existing, the band themselves almost treat it like your time in the band never happened, more or less? Yeah, I you know... <clears throat> It's yeah, it's just such an interesting thing to see from the outside. You know, I can only um, I can only make my own assumptions as to as to why that is, why it's uh, the black sheep of the family. But um, but yeah, I don't know. Like I, I just kind of find it funny. That's all. Like I I still even through all of this like murkiness with whatever you might want to call this. Let's just say like this this murky very minute drama that might exist there that makes it sort of exist in this strange place i still like am able to separate myself from all of that and in any basically separate myself from any assumptions i'm making as to why they don't talk about that record at all and like just appreciate like if nothing else i made a record that i'm really happy with and that was the that was the guiding north star that i always abided by even when i was in the band i didn't i had there was just always a part of me that knew it was like it wasn't going to last long so i i yeah there's just because i i think part of me just had that in the back of my head because of their history i was the third guy in line you know what i mean so i knew that i knew there was a lot working against me at the time and i tried to remain extremely realistic about that but but at the same time approach it like 
with a really great spirit and energy and like not be too um, hindered by that, you know, not be intimidated by the fact that I'm having to live up to Fred or John and instead really embrace that and um, embrace whatever version of that was. And I think uh, I said earlier, I was really lucky that they gave me a lot of creative control. And I kind of assumed that is sort of part of it too, is that I wrote so much of new again that um, maybe they, they don't feel so much ownership over it in, you know, now looking back in their own, from their own perspective. Um, Cause a lot of that music was me. So, um, you know, I just find it kind of weird. I find it kind of funny that it's the black sheep, but it really doesn't change the way that I perceive the record. I'm just because I knew that I approached it from the, the like right spirit. I wasn't trying to do something that wasn't me. I wasn't trying to like make, um, anyone at a label happy I had to like try to make sure that I was making music that I could live with 10 years down the line and and luckily I'm there you know so so yeah it, it's just weird that they, they that they kind of neglect the record but um I, yeah I only have sort of my own guesses as to why that is I'm so disconnected from from uh their world at this point that that's sort of where I dwell you know <laughs> Yeah, actually, it's very fortuitous timing. And, um, and I'm trying to, like, uh, like that for a while, I spent a lot of time neglecting that because, um, because it went so awkwardly. So now, like, being 10 years removed from it, getting to the anniversary of the record, like, I've uh, sort of allowed myself to go back into that space a little bit, at least to, like, try to approach it from a nostalgic standpoint and see the good parts of it and, and, um, you know, like I said, I'm very proud of the record. So that has always been something that has stayed consistent across the board. And that makes it easier for me to just to go back and maybe post the throwback Thursday photo here and there or whatever, or at least openly talk about these things, you know, because um, I, I like, honestly, I really appreciate people like you that um, were able to give that record um, a chance. Cause I knew that it was tough to ask that of people for a third go around, you know? And so that's why like, I can also be realistic about what the reaction was. I'm happy that critically people seem to enjoy it. Like the people that uh, have to put words to paper. Um, but you know, I, I also get that there were a huge swath of the listeners that were probably not even interested in giving me a chance and that I had to try to figure out a way to, to earn their trust. And so, I mean, at the time that meant I was really trying hard to, no one else in the band was doing the social media thing. So I was doing a lot of blogs for the band at the time. Um, and just trying to be really present to, um, to the fans. And even like after shows or before shows, just like make sure that if anyone wanted some of my attention, that I was giving it to them because I felt like that was the, the best way to try and, um, ingratiate myself in the TBS world and try to win people over is just to try and be the most genuine version of me and, and have a smile on my face and a good attitude and rip the songs as hard as I can when they see me play live and basically leave like no reason for them to, to, uh, to not be stoked on it. At least if they had a chance to either listen to the record or come see it live, they go like, oh, okay, this dude can hang. That's okay. That's fine. You know, I can live with that. Yeah. I was really happy when they finally last year did the the vinyl re-release of it. 
because it was a bitch. <laughs> for a record that no one apparently <laughs> liked, the original pressing goes for a shitload of money, which is always funny that it's like, no one likes this, so why are you charging so much for it? <laughs> Exclusivity, my friend, because there's only yeah. four copies of it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, nice thing You is, know, that's was... funny, man. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that um, I actually only just got that new pressing. This is the first time I've had new again on vinyl, too. So, uh, yeah, it's funny. Like, I never even got an original version. Well, for I think uh, about $300, you can find one on like Discogs or something. <laughs> uh, maybe I could trade a guitar from that era for uh, someone, <laughs> to someone for it. <laughs> I'd like to have some memories from uh, my own time in the band, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it, it is interesting, though, because like, when they did the repress, you know, the internet being what it is, which is a vocal, a loud vocal minority, you know, a lot of people were like, why the fuck would you repress a record that no one likes? But it's like, I think from what I saw, like it sold pretty well. I think it actually sold out like the pressing that it had. Uh, if not, it's still regardless. It, it was one of those things that someone obviously saw value in repressing it. Um, so to me, it was it was finally nice to, to add it to my collection and, and play it. Even though when I do, most people are like, that record sucks. I'm like, well, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, I really appreciate you beating the drum on that, though, dude. Because I, I, I still think that the record's cool, and I don't up. know Sounds why really people great. don't give it a chance, you know? Yeah, I think it turned out cool. <laughs> um, but, you know, every, everyone's got their own nostalgic connection to that band, and uh, so I, I, can totally, I can totally get why. There's just um, there's only so much uh, room for, for lead guitar players and extra voices <laughs> behind Adam, you know? <laughs> Right. Um, but, um, yeah, Live at Orange Sands kind of like made me also just feel like I I left it on a on a really strong note, you know. Just yeah. like as long as the music does the talking, then I can live with whatever anyone else has to say or their own interpretations of it. At the end of the day, speaking to letting the music do the talking, what is in store for Rare Futures uh, for the rest of this year? Uh, yeah, Ultimate and Warrior Tour. Yeah, it's with some um, some friends. There's a band called Passaway that uh, has uh, a gentleman named Mikey that's from a band called I'm the Avalanche. Uh, so it's one of his new bands. Uh, there's a band called Late Waves that's from New Jersey that's on that we've played with a couple times before, and then a, a Pittsburgh band called Millie. Um, yeah, so it'll be fun. It's just a real quick run of four shows in the Northeast. So it's all, it'll all be really easy and it, it'll be fun to, we haven't, we haven't done things for a while because, uh, one, one of my band members had a baby and then another of my band members has just been busy with real life stuff. So, um, it's kind of cool to, to, uh, come out of hibernation after so long and, and play a little bit, shake off the rust and, also get back into a creative mode where I'm trying to force myself to finish some music for uh, features. Cause you know, now that um, we're three years removed from the last record, I think it's about time, <laughs> even though we fill the gaps with things, you know um, it's, it's about time for some new music and I've got some of that stuff ready to go. So it's cool. I'm, I'm excited. I'm hoping to get maybe a new EP out later this year or a full length. I'm, I don't know. I go back and forth about that idea. Where, where do you stand on the EP versus the full length? It's so fucking funny you ask this because, A, it's something I always talk about, and secondly, it was something I was going to bring up earlier uh, and just didn't want to shoehorn it in. So very serendipitous. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Perfect. Because um, I'm always curious to know where people stand on this. So here's my thing. Um, so earlier I was kind of talking about how, you know, you 
chose to do the live record as opposed to maybe putting out another record. And something, you know, kind of speaking back to the early 2000s and so forth, you know, a lot of bands would do this thing, and, and Taking Back Sunday did it with Louder Now, where, you know, you had Louder Now, and then Louder Now Part 1, and then Louder Now Part 2, where it was, you know, a live DVD and a documentary and all this stuff. And it feels like bands were really good, and the used to were really good at this, uh, the first couple of records. You had the record, then you had an EP that had, you know, maybe some demos, a bonus song or two, and then a documentary making of, and then, you know, you'd have you know, maybe six months before the next record would drop or there'd be a teaser of new music on the end of the DVD. Um, and that was, you know, it seemed like we were labels and bands were a little more conscious of the holdover, not making you wait so long for something new. That being said, I don't know nowadays with the, you know, cause we've talked about the shift in the music industry. And if we're going to go based on what popular music, and I'm not talking about top 40 pop music, but what is currently selling the most, which is hip hop, it seems that they are are blurring this weird line, and I, I kind of mentioned it briefly on <laughs> mentioned it briefly on yeah mentioned it briefly uh, in one of my recent interviews where I was saying you know Drake is kind of this interesting sort of anomaly in the fact that you know he puts out full lengths and the full lengths are made up of singles that he's dropped over the course of maybe maybe a year or two, and but then he'll put out you know a. a, a you know, with Scorpion, basically a double record, and half of it you, you know, you've already been inundated with for over a year, so it's not necessarily really needed, at which point I'd almost rather it show up on like a mixtape or something or an EP and just be like, cool, that's going to hold me over until the next full-length release. So I don't know, but it seems like the the as we were saying with fans nowadays, always just, you know, the new thing is constantly coming out and being bombarded with, with content and media and so forth, that I don't know if if doing like hip hop has done where it's just about releasing singles and then maybe eventually you make that a collection of something and a a product. But I feel like that's almost the way to go because you're, how many times has this happened to you where, okay, I recorded all this music. I've been sitting on it and, and maybe either through a label or personal or whatever. And then by the time it gets out to everyone, you're already nine months removed from that. And you've already written something new that you're now more passionate and excited about because it's the new thing. So to me, it would probably be a thing where I feel like from an artist and creative standpoint, I feel like dropping singles or a couple of songs as they're new and ready to be released actually would be the more rewarding thing because it's keeping fans updated but it's also allowing you to to constantly be you can kind of see an evolution as opposed to being like oh shit where did this come from so starkly because you waited a year two or three to put something out and you didn't you don't see that slow progression of how something morphed into what it became or has become so i'm more of the line of thinking that maybe the record industry maybe is shifting back to how it was in like the 50s where it was about singles and, and driving a single and everyone, you know, would just be tirelessly in the studio and you're constantly putting out that ne- literally the next song to keep people interested in what you're doing. And then, you know, those songs become a collection of number ones or whatever. I mean, you look at like Elvis or Jerry Lee Lewis or Sun Records as a whole, you know, was really good at doing that where it'd be a collection of stuff of singles and then. You know, granted, 45s were the way that people were were buying media at that point, but I think that's 
almost really 45s are basically what we're doing now in the single culture of iTunes and Spotify and whatever, where you get to pick and choose what you want as opposed to being forced to buy a record and hope that it's all good. Yeah, that, yeah. That's my take on it. I, I think that's kind of where we're at. So I don't know if it's necessarily EPs versus full lengths as much as it is just dropping a song every so often. Yeah, I think I'm finding myself kind of evolving to the same place, like just that people's attention spans are so short at this point that um, having things be bite-sized is, is a, a little bit more um, conducive to sort of like finding that, that little nugget of time to, to poke your head into someone's life, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I, I waffle back and forth about that a lot because there's the other side of it is like, um, being from our generation and, and being connected to bands in the way that we were growing up. Like, um, I, there was a part of a, a, there was like a ritual to giving your time to a full length record and really getting into it. And uh, I understand it's just not really the same thing anymore. Um, so yeah, like I, I think I find myself sort of evolving to a place of either going that route that you're saying is like, slowly doling out a song at a time or maybe just an EP, but keeping it really short, like four songs, um, just so that it, it's like a little bit easier to digest. I think, um, a, I was going to say, I think a band like yeah, Crosses tough, is, is interesting. If, if you're, I would assume you're kind of a fan of them because of sort of the, the textures and a lot of the, the playing on those, uh, from a musician's perspective. Yeah. Crosses are rad. Okay. Talk about a band with like good branding and stuff too. Yeah. So the thing that was interesting about Crosses to me is as a vinyl collector, you know, they put out three EPs. So they have one, as I refer to them on the vinyl version, but like, you know, there was one, two and three or, you know, light blue, yellow, and I forget what the pink, uh, I was going to say what the other thing was, but they released the vinyl as the EPs kind of came out and, you know, you lived with those couple of songs, but it was a greater, longer play to by the, when they released the third EP, it was announced that they had signed to Sumerian and then that Sumerian was going to put out the vinyl of the whole thing and they reordered the track listing to kind of give those songs a completely different vibe because now they're not next to the other two to three songs that were on those EPs. However, if you wanted those, you can still buy the, the EP collection as they were, which I do. So I have the three EPs and then I have the full length, but it's really interesting because, and I feel like maybe you could utilize something like that because it allows the works to stand as they were and you to be familiarized with how the EP was presented in the first place and those songs put in the specific track listing order they were to create a specific listening experience. But then when you pull them all together for a, a bigger release down the road, maybe with like they did with the third where it's like now here's the third and now we have a full length record on our hands and now we're going to reinterpret how the track listing goes to give you a completely different listening experience from start to finish. And to me, I could see you guys doing something like that and really utilizing that kind of space uh, to kind of rework an experience for people, because I think you would take enough time to, to curate uh, each one. That's a really cool idea. I like that. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's something I really haven't uh, seen a band do before. I mean, I've seen definitely the version of, um, slowly doling songs out and collecting them in, under one umbrella, but that's cool to like give you a certain track listing and then flip that track listing around when it um, is in the context of a few other songs as well. So that's cool. I like that. 
Um, because I've I've been sort of going that way with some of our music too. There's always been this sort of split personality thing with with rare features where um, there's the part of me that loves Soundgarden and really heavy guitar uh, centric kind of rock songs, and then there's uh, the there's a side of the personality of the band that is a lot more like Sade, like very ethereal, spacious, groove oriented, mellow. So um, that there's and that continues through some of the new songs I'm writing too. So I've considered it like doing uh, like a batch of songs that's all really guitar heavy and then doing a complete polar opposite and having a batch of songs that's almost like no guitars or very minimal, no heavy guitars. And then having them sort of get mixed, mixed and matched, um, mixed and matched like you're saying. So that might actually be a cool direction to go with it. You might've just planted a good seed for me to, to uh, explore, you know? Have you, this may be out of the realm of what you listen to musically, uh, there's a, it's hard to really define him, but this this artist called Ghostmane, are you familiar with him? So he's an amalgamation of different genres and stuff. Um, he is, I would sort of say he's in the sort of realm of like SoundCloud rapper, but not, but he, the fan base is sort of that, but he mixes like trap music with hardcore music with black metal with you know he he is he loves a lot of different things and finds ways to kind of blend them all together i'll have to send you a text uh after we're done with this and send you some stuff but he is in the in in the throes uh, i just saw him post a couple of days ago that i think april 10th uh he is going to drop a series of eps and one's going to be a straight up like black metal record. One's going to be a like hip hop record. One's going to be a hardcore thing. And like he's separating everything into a specific set of music as opposed to bl- trying, you know, blending them all together. And to me, it's really interesting to see someone like that kind of go like who's already flipping multiple genres and mixing them together that don't seemingly go together now separate them so he can be definitively these things on them. Uh, he did a really interesting uh, cover story on in the new Revolver that I saw the other day. And uh, it, it's just, you know, in as much as I'm not, I don't keep up with a lot of newer music, it's like the few things that I do find are things that excite me because they're, they have a hand or have a foot in what I do love. You know, I love hardcore music, so like I'm going to check that something out like that. I love aspects of black metal and you know death metal and stuff like that but i'm interested to see what he does with it because one of the things i don't like about black metal and death metal is usually the shitty tinny production on it it's like you mean to tell me that you you can't find someone to actually record you better and i know that's sort of the endearing quality to most about that but to me it's not um so it's one of those things like that has me really interested to see how that goes because it's someone who Hip hop fans typically, or trap fans, or SoundCloud rapper fans typically aren't going to be the same fans of black metal, death metal, hardcore. However, vice versa, hardcore kids probably aren't into trap music and shit like that. But I'm interested to see when he just fully goes down that road, what the fans of everything else are going to be. Because I remember being in my mid 30s, something cool like you know Judgment Night soundtrack, where you're seeing Biohazard and fucking you know all these bands that shouldn't go together play together and come up with cool stuff. And you know there's this new metal resurgence, and you know a lot of people are shitting shit on new metal for a long time because it wasn't cool anymore. And it's 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 fun to do that where you shit on something that was popular because it is the trendy thing to do. But to me, I've said new 
new metal was kind of and i guess we could even say 80s music as a whole but like new metal was interesting because of the umbrella that new metal is incorporates people who took new metal and went industrial with it like static x uh, you can look at someone like Limp Bizkit who influenced more hip-hop into their stuff or Korn who took more like Mr. Bungle and Faith No More and like odd time signature shit and went that route. And it's like new Metal isn't one thing, it's everything. And it's interesting to see how many people took that genre and ran with it or Mudvayne even who went more progressive metal and stuff like that with their, their shit. And even if you go back to like 80s like where it's like you can have a band – the 80s might, might have been full of so many quote-unquote one-hit wonders, but look at how diverse all of that music was. You had rock, you had pop, you had in, you know you had tinges of electronic music. You had sort of like you know look at Rod Stewart with the song he did with uh, the Tempta- or the yeah the Temptations I think where he went more Motown on a song and stuff like that. It's like you have such a wide span of genres being blended together to create newer ideas and newer takes on stuff, and to me that's that's what I don't feel like we have a lot of anymore. And so seeing someone like Ghostmane has me really excited because it's like you're doing the thing that I love where it's like it's not stagnant. You're not doing the thing, same thing everyone else is doing. You're flipping everything on its head. And to me, that's exciting. Now, whether it's what everyone else wants, I don't know. But to me, as a listener and as someone who's been listening to music for as long as I have and listens to a wide array of stuff, something like that has me really excited. And I don't know. I, I think that's in, in a day and age where the, the labels aren't – I don't know that there's a need for labels other than for distribution avenues. Doing shit like this totally on your own DIY, like, it, it's exciting. Like, like again, a, a band like Code Orange has me excited because they're taking what was aggressive music and they're adding tinges of industrial and adding tinges of weird – avant-garde noise rock and shit into their brand of hardcore and it's exciting and they put on a really intense and ferocious show and they're uncompromising in anything that they do and the way that they're doing and as a result the industry is kind of shaping around what they're doing and i feel like we just don't have that in music anymore we don't have those risk takers and the risk takers are usually rewarded maybe after the fact i don't know yeah, you're right. It's been, I mean, I, I agree. I agree on so many things you just said, like get, going back to the 80s thing. I think you're right. There's a lot more diversity in the music than people sort of um, like want to uh, pigeonhole about the 80s. You know, people have such a, um, they, they sort of narrow the lane of what came out in the 80s to the the, the electronic one hit wonders kind of shit. But um, there were a lot of bands doing some really diverse shit. And Tears for Fears being one. They're one of my favorite bands, but um, I feel like they're, dude, they're such a great band, and I feel like they're they're also a really great example of a band that transcended the sound of the 80s. They didn't stick to one vibe, one genre, They and they really, um, over the three records they made in the 80s, they really changed from record to record significantly. So um, so I agree. Like that, that was a great era for music, and to, to get it back to the present, um, I also agree that things have been homogenized to a point where there is, to, like, at least the way I perceive it, there there does seem to be less um, less originality in certain ways, and um, yeah, there are less less bands taking risks or less bands that are trying to sort of genre bend in the same way. I think it's all because. Um, it's all because of that same idea of like people's attention spans are so short that they either don't want to give a band the time to like 
find themselves and really find their voice. There's just no, there's just no time. There's no time for a band to discover who they are and really try, try things to see what, what works and what doesn't. It's kind of like you, you're forced into making decisions based on, on immediate results, you know? And that means like that approaches, that changes the approach to songwriting, that changes the approach to all things across the board. So I'm with you. Like I obviously I'm on the side of, uh, on your side where I love bands that are doing things that are really, really diverse and they're taking chances and they're going different places and they're, um, and, and they're like trying to give you different moods. So there, there are some bands that are really doing that fantastically. Um, and then I, I really wish that there was just more, more trying, <laughs> yeah. more trying to do things that are outside the box. Yeah. Yeah. But I get, I, I get that the reaction to the climate that we live in is that it's, it's just, it's well, just not to the as narrative, conducive, it's, it's in, you it's know, in a decline and, and we should just give up and, and accept whatever it is that they give us. That, that's almost the narrative that it seems to be put out there. Yeah. It's, I mean, a money talks, dude, you know? So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like at the end of the day, it, like you could be the dopest band in the world and be doing such awesome genre defying shit. But um, there is an element of, of like someone on the outside or there has to be something bigger at play that allows you to have a platform in order to sort of rise out of the, the, uh, from, from the, from the bottom with all these other bands that are maybe not trying to do things that are so different, but there's just so much fluff. It's just hard for the cream to, to rise to the top. You know, it's hard to break out without, without a little bit of help or, or just being so on to something that you're you're the next wave of whatever it is. You're you know, you're you're at the forefront somehow. You're the limp biscuit of the next generation. <laughs> <laughs> My generation. <laughs> <laughs> My generation. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't, sorry, I couldn't. Leave oh that wow, good one. Good, love it, love it. Um, um, so yeah, I don't know, man. Like it's, I feel like we could get into this conversation for forever. You know, it's it's such an interesting conversation to me. Because there's there's so many factors at play that are affecting the creativity, that are affecting the business approach, um, and then just with um, with the industry being like ever evolving and and uh, and like things like Spotify and Apple Apple Music just it just doesn't allow musicians to to be musicians. We have to be sort of on multiple uh, trying to figure out multiple streams of income or you know like splitting our our time doing things just to be just to survive before you even get to the point of creativity. So that just ups the stakes, you know, when you're writing songs and um, you're not just writing to write or writing to, to make music, but you're writing it with the intention of like, I have to try to reach a certain amount of people or, um, or fit into a certain box. It, it's a very like kind of dangerous place to be, you know, it just, it's not conducive to great art some people are able to still fight through that and stuff, but um, it's a battle, man. And I, I go through that all the time with my own music, just like trying to make sure I'm approaching it from a pure perspective and not letting some of those, those uh, extracurricular things that come along with being in a band and trying to make it go on a business level, not letting those things affect the, uh, the most important thing, which is the music. Yeah. 
Most so I don't know. It's a fucked up conversation. It goes so many different directions. Well, the the I'll, I'll preface by saying this. You know, I like I like talking about the music like business side of things. And admittedly, I have never done anything within it from even being. I did like one shit tour with like a friend's band or some band that I joined randomly one summer, and I booked a tour for a friend's band that went about equally as well. Um, and and that's it. It's it's other than that. It's just listening to people tell their their stories and, and just kind of trying to understand. So it's a it's a thing where you know I've gotten to talk to producers. I've gotten to talk to musicians. I you know I'm slowly working on getting some more you know band managers and and business people on to to talk about these things because I think they're interesting and I think it's the bigger narrative of everything. It's like you know the only way I can really break it down that. I guess if you're not super into music, that would make sense is, you know, if you like sports, other than just the collection of talent that makes your team, there's so many outside variables as to what makes a successful franchise, you know, from the business decisions that are made from your marketing to, to get people into the, into your product, to putting the right financial people in place, to getting the, you know, the right cost of your, your products when you're there. So it, it encourages people to want to spend money. It's basically a culture that you're creating and a local yeah, yeah. And, and a business and a brand. And there's, there's so many variables that create a successful team. And those things also in, impact the players, even beyond just the skill level, because now you're also talking, bringing in media people who want sound bites for the newspapers and the 24 hour news cycle we're into. Well, the, I, I pissed off the coach or this, this person's not happy. And, <laughs> and there's just so many intangibles that it's like, you know, you could put together the greatest team in the world, but they may not perform because of maybe they're in a bad market. Maybe they're in a bad you know, the owner doesn't give a shit. You know, there, there's just so many things that are in it. Yeah, and all, it's ex- all this minutia. Yeah, that effect, one affects the other, affects the other. It's a they're all effect. interconnected. Yeah. yeah, they're all interconnected. And so to me, um, it's, and I, I feel like by and large. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I think it's just one of those things that I feel like, you know, there's probably the greatest band in the world that we've ne- all of us have collectively never heard of because, like you're saying, they don't have financial backing from someone. They don't have label interest. They don't have tour support. They don't have – and there's all these other variables, and it has nothing to do with the fact of how good of a musician they are. And that's that's the thing. Yeah. That's the yeah. part of the story I like hearing because – it's it's the story we don't hear because it's it's no one wants to hear the story about like well I had all the tools to succeed and I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree and I think that's such a it's that disconnect right there is such a big part of why the industry is in such a strange place. Uh, it's just like the disconnect between like the burger you see sitting on your plate and the, what it took for the burger to get there. Like people don't think about the process of everything that led to that point it's just you're just eating the burger and you paid the five bucks to have it and that's just it now music has been devalued in such a way where you pay the cost of a cup of coffee for a month and you have everything you could ever want at your fingertips so there's not you don't have the same connection anymore there's not as much value there's not money for musicians to be creative um and a lot of people just don't think about um what it takes for a record to be made a really great quality record, how much time and blood, sweat and tears to compose the music, to take the step of going to a studio to make it sound right. All these extra little details that make the product that 
is just plopped right in front of you. People don't recognize that and how much um, goes into it. And so that is also just like uh, feeding into that exponential devaluing of music, you know? Yeah. It's fucked up. Well, I uh, think that's as good as any place uh, to end this conversation. <laughs> I actually was going to end it like a while ago, and then we got on this weird tangent of where EPs versus full lengths and so forth, uh, which is obviously something that's I'm, all... I'm uh, kind of oh, yeah, passionate about. <laughs> I'm passionate about it too, and I, I, I feel like these co- sort of conversations, for people to hear them uh, like and hear it over and over again, that musicians are struggling a lot more than people might realize. Uh, and and their dollar goes a long way. If you really love a band or you love an artist, if you're out buying their merch or going to the shows, like I think people don't realize what a difference that makes to them, to allowing them to continue to be creative, to, to give you something that you're enjoying, you know, wh- wherever you go, on your run or whatever. The, all the, the music that's enriching your life and however you allow it, um, I would love for people to make that connection to... Uh, to the ground a little bit and just be like, Oh, these musicians are, are real people. And some of them are making this really great stuff and they're balling on a budget. They've got no backing, you know, whatever X, Y, and Z. And, and then going like, okay, I can actually become more of an active participant in cultivating whatever this artist is doing. You know, I love what they're doing. They're giving me something. So I think if people, get back to a place of feeling more uh, responsibility for the musicians or the artists that really mean something. If they take more of an active role, I think this conversation helps to push that forward. It's really important. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Uh, Where can everyone find you and or the band online? Uh, Everything you ever could want to know about Matt Fozzi or Rare Futures can be found at rarefuturesmusic.com. It's a very gorgeous website. Thank you. Thank you. appreciate that. I I really tried to make sure that anyone that was a Happy Body fan or anyone that might be a Rare Futures fan, when you go there, you get that there's a marriage between the two and every piece of music or every video is all there for you. So that's that's the hub, rarefuturesmusic.com. And uh, I got to say, I got to wait to to get some money when it doesn't go to like taxes and bullshit, but... uh... This uh, this is your brain on love. It's Trump's America. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> he was just here a couple of days ago, actually. Uh, this is your brain on love. The deluxe uh, two LP collection uh, looks absolutely stunning. Um, I mean, it has an LED oh, jacket. Um, so I need to scoop up one of those and uh, just, I mean, for the conversation piece alone of having that uh, would be great. Um, but yeah, so if you're a vinyl collector, obviously there's plenty of vinyl uh, hoodies and a bunch of other stuff. Go to rarefuturesmusic.com. And uh, anything else you would like to uh, plug or anything? Um, go out to see shows. Go buy merch from your favorite bands. Be, be, be active in the scene. Um, I think that's one of the main messages I'd like to, to give to people is if you love an artist, really try to um, play a role in, in helping them do what they're doing. Don't just be a Spotify listener, you know, if you're, you know, which is fine. Be that person, but find other ways to, to give to that artist and to allow them to um, keep creating. Rad, we'll be out there soon, man. Thank you so much for having me. So that was my conversation with Matt Fozzi of Rare Futures, X Taking Back Sunday. I uh, really want to take the time out and uh, say thank you to Matt for being so honest and uh, giving me a lot of time to talk about 
all things that I had questions about. I mean, you know, we're starting to see a lot of this, you know, a band puts out a record and then maybe a year or so later they do like a live version of it and it may not always make its way to a proper release. Uh, but in this situation, I think it was really interesting to see Rare Futures really dedicate to creating interesting content for the re-release of this live version of their record. And I mean, if you go on YouTube, you can see it like, you know, multi-angles and, you know, even kind of rearranging a little bit of the tracks and so forth since they're having to do it live, like in a studio versus just, you know, I can lay down to this extra, this extra part and so forth. But it, uh... It was really interesting to kind of get to pick his brain about that. And, you know, the Taking Back Sunday stuff, I've been sitting on for 10 plus years uh, wanting to know what's what happened with that. And, you know, I know he's spoken about some of this stuff in some other interviews that he's done more recently. I don't know if I've really heard anyone ask him, like, how did you feel when, you know, you're getting lauded for all the things that is why everyone supposedly loves the record that they just spent all this time working on with you to then when you're no longer in the band, everyone's like, nah, that record sucks. And and this dude is the reason that it sucks. And it's like, I just can't imagine, you know, we talked about it in the intro, but I can't imagine the extremes of either of those situations. Like you're riding cloud nine with being in, you know, finally making it into a big band and feeling like, you know, right out the gate, you're a big part of the band and, and all this kind of stuff. And then, I mean, it debuts in the top <laughs> the top fucking 10, and everyone treats it like it's like the worst thing that ever happened to the band. And it's, I don't know, it's just, it's crazy to see how that all shook out. And then basically, you know, that was kind of the, the last shakeup before the iteration we got now, really, of the original band getting back together. So it just was a really interesting time uh, for Taking Back Sunday. A lot of people don't like the record. Uh, they say it's too dark and it's too, it's not fun. Um, and I wholly disagree. I, I think given what the band had gone through at the time, I think it's, like I said, I think it's a, the more grown up snapshot of taking back Sunday at that time. And I wish there was more of it. Um, and, and that's just me, I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, and you guys had brought up, uh, Finch's, uh, say hello to sunshine record, which was another record that, you know, which didn't sound the same, but it, it definitely had the same effect on the listener base where they were all like, no, we just, we we only want want a band to sound a specific way, and uh, you know people basically just snubbed a perfectly great record that was a huge step forward for Finch, and basically they were like, nah, I don't really like it, so whatever, it's it's stupid. It's like okay, well, it was a good it was a good record, and it's really weird hearing you know Taking Back Sunday be like, well, it wasn't a good record because of just this one guy. It's like really i mean it's not a collaborative thing that's that that's the thing that I, that's the thing that i keep going back to i'm just like guys it was a collaborative effort you guys all put your stamp of approval on it at one point and honestly like to me friendships i guess are more important than record sales maybe i'd feel differently if i had real record sales at stake but uh you know the, the reality is is that the record is what it is and even if that's how they truly felt i don't feel i don't feel the need i don't see the need for them to drag a dude's name and legacy through the dirt because of it yeah, I I'm hoping to get uh hoping to get Fred on soon. We we talked about doing something, but he wanted a lot of things to kind of come to fruition first before coming on the show and talking about them. Um, sure. Fred and I, and I, I know I kind of made a quick reference to it in our chat with Matt. You know, when I booked a show with uh, Fred's band, Terrible Things, um, at really short notice, and we were on the phone for probably like 
two hours uh, one day, just kind of going over just logistics and, and money and, and kind of all that stuff. And then Fred yeah. and I just started talking and like, I was like, Oh, you know, I, you know, I hadn't seen you since this, you know, the last taking back Sunday tour you did. And, and it seemed like things were kind of bad and, and you left the band and all this kind of stuff. And then he told me a lot of what was going on and was just, you know, before I had this podcast and all that kind of stuff, it was another reminder of just, you know, I barely know people, but they'll, they'll just open up to me. Um, yeah. And I remember at one point my phone died or I thought it was my phone and it was Fred's. And my wife was like, hey, can we go get dinner now? Because you've been on the phone with this dude for like two hours. And I was like, absolutely. And then during dinner, uh, like 20 minutes later, Fred calls me back. He's like, oh, my phone died. Uh, so anyway, and I'm like, hey, Fred, it, uh, really want to talk to go, you. Bro. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm eating dinner. Uh, I'll talk to you later. And then I remember just telling my wife, I was like, what the fuck is my life? Like, I just told like, you know, a dude that I've really admired, guitar player, uh, for a while uh, that I, I can't talk to him. <laughs> I've done that before, like being out of town and seeing bands like that I that I really like, and I'll be chatting with the band after the show, and you know, I'll be like, okay, great, 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 great. We're just like chatting and chatting and chatting, and like you know, I drove five hours to see them, but then I'm like, hey, look, man, I got to drive another five hours back, so uh, we gotta let's uh, let's wrap this up. Let's do this a different time. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> But uh, no, this is, I think this is a really good chat, and uh, I think we've actually been doing really good lately with some of our longer chats uh, as a whole. I mean, the Corey Unger episode has been doing pretty well right out the gate. Uh, as of when we were recording this, we dropped it today. Um, the PRP already picked up on it and shared uh, the news of, you know, the Blood Has Been Shed record that no one has heard. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for that. A, a ton. Yes, absolutely. And hopefully some more people pick up on it, because it seemed like, you know, when Howard just said, you know, there's music, it may not ever see the light of day, but there is basically a record. Uh, a lot of people seem to want to hear it. And the few comments I've seen on the PRP, people are like, yo, like, I <laughs> I thought they were just saying, like, oh, there was music. I didn't realize there was as much as there is. Now I'm definitely interested and I really want it. And I hope, I hope, I know I said this in the episode itself, but I hope if nothing more, these two episodes that we did make people realize, like, if you forgot how great Blood is Machete is, well, then you go back and you listen to the three albums that are, and you just go, fuck, that was a great time, and I have so many memories wrapped up in that. Or maybe this pushes Corey and the guys to, to get together and, and finish some songs and at least get like the couple that are tracked officially, uh, drum-wise and so forth, and, and get this thing out in some capacity. Um, I'd be okay with an EP even if yeah. they didn't feel like it was all worth keeping. You know? Absolutely. And I feel like, you know, this is a, another great example. Like, you had an hour, you know, long chat with uh, John from Circleback. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of people really loving that record all of a sudden, um, possibly yeah. as a result of that or discography discussion or whatever. Um, so maybe this is one where maybe you weren't a fan of New Again at the time, or maybe you've never heard of Rare Futures. But between this conversation with Matt, because of your, your vague interest in Taking Back Sunday or whatever, that maybe you go and give either of those bands uh, or that band and the album another shake and you find that man i actually kind of slept on this album and it was actually really good or maybe dan's suggestion of a uh, say hello to sunshine by finch uh if you thought that that it was not good as good as what it is to burn i mean a you're wrong but uh secondly maybe you go back and realize that like man my my 15 or 12 to 15 year ears now uh can really appreciate what the band was trying to do that i just didn't enjoy back then and i think that's kind of the fun thing about doing this podcast sometimes is we're able to experience and get to know stories about records that either we love or maybe have forgotten about or 
just want to know the behind the scenes stuff on that we we never got to know and maybe we're able to introduce uh some new bands to you in the process as well because you know matt was a to me was always kind of the what happened to him i i've been following him but i know a lot of people probably haven't and so now I, i'd like to present this to you and and we talk in depth about the new project he's doing and maybe it in, intrigues you to go check it out and you might have just found a new favorite band and you didn't even know they existed yeah could be all that aside, though, this was a rather long uh, chat, and we kind of got on a, a little bit of a, a flaw tangent uh, in the beginning. Yeah, we're totally flawed. Uh, so if you would like to keep up with Rare Futures, you can find them simple enough on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Rare Futures. Uh, check out their website. Uh, there will be links to it on all their socials. That vinyl for the live album is stupidly beautiful looking. Uh, I should pick up one of my own. I just keep forgetting to grab it, just like a lot of records. I, I'm like, I'm going to get that, and then I forget, and then I see one, and I'm like, fuck, I need to get that. I hear you. Uh, but if you'd like to keep up with Matt himself, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Matt Fozzie. Simple enough. Uh, and if you'd like to keep up with Metal Nexus, simple enough again. MetalNexus.net, Facebook, Metal Nexus, Instagram, Metal.Nexus, and Twitter at Metal underscore Nexus. And uh, Dan will simply tell you where he can be found as well. As simply as I can, man. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Discuss Metal Dan. I am on the Gmails at show at gmail.com or DiscussMetalDan at gmail.com. Either one of those work. Uh, I've recently shown up on Instagram as Discography Discussion. That's a, that's a new uncharted territory for me. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, you know, you can find out all that stuff about me. You just Google Discography Discussion or Google Brutally Speaking. I, I'm going to I'm gonna pop up, hopefully not in a creepy way. And if you would like to keep up with all things this podcast, you can find us simple enough at BrewSpeakPod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out our YouTube channel. We have videos of some of the interviews we've done. It's also just another way that might be easier for you to find us uh, and listen to us wherever you, you are listening to this app. You can also support us if you would like monetarily on patreon.com slash brewspeakpod. Uh, if you would like to support us non-monetarily, uh, wherever you're listening to this, subscribe, rate, review, let us know what uh, we can do to get better. Uh, or what you like about the show, how you found the show even. That's been pretty interesting as of late. A few people have told us uh, how they found the show, and, and you know it's always greatly appreciated. And if you would like to follow our show sponsor, The Bean Bastard, you can find them at thebeanbastard.com, Facebook and Instagram at The Bean Bastard. And for the Brutally Speaking podcast, I am John. And I am Dan. And we will talk to you all next week.